that it's not up to the Attorney General to tell the committee how to conduct this business or uh, we will decide uh, what the most effective way of uh, asking questions are and we, that's what our decision is. If he doesn't show up on Thursday, we'll have to go to subpoenas. Mr. Rosenstein has a lot to say about that investigation, I'm sure, because he was the one who started it and then oversaw it and ultimately saw it through to its conclusion. Don McGahn, of course, has been subpoenaed by Congress to testify about those same things that he described to the special counsel. President Trump and the White House have said they will try to stop Don McGahn from testifying to Congress. But what do you think about how this is going to end here? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So ever since reading the Mueller report, and let's face it, before that, I've been stuck on the question of cheating. How does history settle illegitimate or at least questionable victories like that of the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series in 1919, the series that was thrown by the White Sox? How about Lance Armstrong's many victories while he was doping? What about the gold medals won by doping Russian athletes at the Sochi Olympics? And what about these kids in the recent scandal who gained admission to colleges by actually cheating on the SAT, straightforward cheating? And then what about a line case like Brett Kavanaugh, who's ascent to the Supreme Court in a thwarted investigation into the eye-popping evidence that he committed sexual misconduct? At the time, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse laid out the reasons to investigate Kavanaugh. It reminds me of Adam Schiff's laying out the reasons that we might think that what Trump did is not okay. So Whitehouse lays out these reasons. No one disagrees with the facts. And yet the Republicans shut the investigation of Brett Kavanaugh down. They didn't dispute the facts. They just wanted him on the Supreme Court more than they wanted the truth about whether he had the moral fiber to do the job. Now, that's not quite cheating, But Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing turned up some very grave stuff, and that never got a full airing. Of course, at the top of the heap, we have cheater Donald Trump, who floridly cheats at everything from his taxes to marriage to golf to elections. He desperately wants everyone to move on from the Mueller report, which he keeps refusing to recognize is both an impeachment referral and a chronicle of his infinity war of wrongdoing. Hopefully, we're near the end end game of that. Still, whatever else it does and doesn't do, the Mueller report makes it clear that Trump got and knew he was getting and appreciated getting illegal criminal help from a hostile foreign power who knew they were giving it to him and expected to profit from his presidency. Even leaving out gerrymandering, the hacks on voting machines and software, and voter suppression, all of which are addressed in the Mueller report, and leaving out still further the structural problems with the system that gives the presidency to the man who got three million fewer votes than his opponent, it is impossible not to concede that Trump's victory belongs in quotation marks. I think I've noticed that airports have been slow to hang Trump's picture up and that placemats that show all the presidents have been slow to include him in the list of presidents. In the little delay, the delay is telling. For now, As history finds its way, I've decided I like the typography choices made by Major League Baseball that affixes an asterisk to any dubious victory. A perfect game that should have been a perfect game, but the ref called one thing wrong that showed up different on the film, asterisk. The 1919 World Series, asterisk. And the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., asterisk. And that's why I'm genuinely happy to see Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Remember, she was the candidate for governor. 
She still refused to concede the gubernatorial election there. And she suggested in The New York Times in a brilliant interview that she will never concede. Abrams illuminates the way to understand cheating, and I think it's right on. You may remember, and we have lessons for 2020 in this, that there were reports up and down the state of Georgia of voter suppression, including about 670,000 voter registrations purged in 2017 and about 53,000 voter registrations pending a month before the election. Abrams didn't get the job of governor by a mere 54,723 votes. Uh, The person who did get it, Republican Brian Kemp, also, oh, oversaw the election as Georgia's secretary of state. What Abrams says now is that democracy failed Georgians and that she won the race, even if she doesn't have the job. And frankly, I feel exactly the same way after reading the Mueller report about Hillary Clinton. So asterisks all around, just so we don't go crazy being told once again that we have to move on from elections and contests that were rigged. And I refuse to move on, so stay tuned for my new website, don'tmoveon.org. My guest today is Elliot Williams. He's a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department. He's now a principal at the Rabin Group, a public affairs firm in Washington, D.C. Elliot, welcome to Trumpcast. Hi, how are you? I'm so glad we're doing this, finally. I know, it's going to be fun. And I know that you had a big weekend. My sisters and brothers who watch Game of Thrones, you're one of them, and I am not one of them. Oh, Uh, No, but I make dinner for the Game of Thrones crowd. There have to be, Uh, you guys need support staff. We do, because those of us who believe in freedom and proper values watch that show, and you are clearly not an American and are a monster. I think that I can make the case for freedom on the home front by serving snacks to my partner while he dives in. Anyway, you know what Game of Thrones sounds like to non-Game of Thrones people. So No, no, no. Totally get on board with this. It's an epic show about kings and queens, and there are also dragons. Yes. And zombies that pose an existential threat to humanity. But trust me, man, <laughs> trust me, it is like the best thing you've ever wanted to see. I don't know if I've ever told this story on Trumpcast or even out loud, but I went to a Almond Brothers concert. Don't at me. And one of the seven drummers had us backstage for various reasons. Wait, um, wait, wait hold, hold on. Seven yeah. drummers. Is this, I mean, is this is this stomp? Yeah. <laughs> They had it was like I think there were three or four drummers on stage. But anyway, this guy invited us backstage, the drummer. We sat around while he got very stoned. Hey. But he told us the whole plot of Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. I mean, like he was like, it wasn't a dirty hole where the Hobbit lived. <laughs> and then like 24 hours later, he was still like, so Galadriel went to Smaug <laughs> and said, Anyway, and that's how I feel when you guys are just quickly summarizing Game of Thrones. But then again, (laughs) take one of the greatest works in American cinematic history and just sort of like, no, 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 man, I'm telling you, there's like a tornado, (laughs) right? And this girl in Kansas with a dog with like all these people that are like farmhands, right? Right. But like the farmhands that show up later, like they come back as like a scarecrow and like a giant (laughs) robot with no heart and like... It's like this big allegory, man, for like for the industrial age. No, 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 no. And then there's a road made of gold. I do. You know what? I do think and this I think I have said on here. I do think fiction is sort of a cure right now because you can't tell the difference between news and fiction unless you know how to read fiction as fiction. Like suspend disbelief 
That was a seamless transition into talking about far more depressing things. That's right. Far more depressing than dragons. So there's a little bit of past and future to cover here. I mm-hmm. want to talk to you about Barr and Rod Rosenstein. Mm-hmm. I know you took a lot of interest in these revelations that Rosenstein, who in our Game of Thrones has <laughs> been a very gray hat character. We've never known the compressed version is he had more than a big hand in firing FBI Director James Comey in May of 2017. And then he redeemed himself, rose again as a messiah when he appointed Bob Mueller. But now that we have slightly mixed feelings about the Mueller report. We're not sure what that was about. And now we also know some background dealings. So how about we haven't summarized the Josh Dossie article or Mm -hmm. any of these findings and we haven't teased out the details. So maybe you can do that for us. So here's the thing. I I think the big picture from that Washington Post reporting is that we now know what it takes to survive as a senior appointee in the Trump in the Trump administration. Right. And there's a certain degree of flattery of the president and a certain degree, to some extent, of even selling out the rule of law in order to survive. And a number of the folks who've been around, like oh, a number of the folks who aren't there anymore. So if you look at like Jeff Sessions, Don McGahn, Kirsten Nielsen, and on down are people who in some way told the president no on a lot of these legal questions, these rule of law questions. Now, these aren't wishy-washy deep state moderate types, right? Mm-hmm. These aren't sort of the kinds of folks that the president rails against. These are dyed-in-the-wool conservatives mm-hmm. who had served the president ideologically. And I think Rosenstein's a fascinating character, and we're going to read about this in books down the road, because he could have taken one of two paths, right? He could have been the grown-up in the room who kept the lights on and kept the republic from falling, mm-hmm. right? Or he could have been the guy, yet another once noble public servant, who was willing to tell the president what the president wanted to hear. And Mm -hmm. I I get the sense, sadly, uh, that he he chose the latter path. The other interesting thing, you know, I do feel like a lot of the things in the article, they're describing rational behavior. Like there's fussing Mm -hmm. about, did he start crying or did he not when the president, sure, he was angry. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't blame him for rational behavior if he truly felt like he'd been aggrieved in some way. But he's just the latest in a long pattern of senior White House officials who seem to seem that their first goal mm-hmm. was to serving this president, not the presidency. Right. And I think that's yeah. there's a big distinction there. Yes, and it's exactly. Really unfortunate one. This is a distinction that Ross Garber, the impeachment lawyer, makes all the time. He made two years ago, I think, on this show. And really got me interested in how we all ought to have a vested interest in the whole branch of government known as the executive branch. And that will, one hopes, survive even its desecration by the current president. But what continues to be a weird theme of figures like Rod Rosenstein, like the Attorney General Bill Barr, like so many others, is that this adult-in-the-room ideal— that I think was applied to John Kelly at times. It's been applied to Ivanka Trump even, that, you know, you have a bunch of kind of thugs and children and adolescents like the president, and someone comes in and they kind of keep it together. But those people always seem to go native. And nobody, and, you know, up to and including possibly Robert Mueller. We just thought he was uncorruptible. And then there's something in the report that threads the needle so that, you know, abusive dad won't kick him around. I mean, you said Rod Rosenstein is an object lesson in survival, but why survive? Sally Yates and Walter Schaub looked at this president and said, I'm out of here. You know, I can't do this. I can't serve. The second 
Schaub, charged with running the Office of Government Ethics, saw that the president and the people around him were not going to divest, which is principle number one of the ethics department. He just said no. Why? Even if Rod Rosenstein agreed with the president on some policy issues or just had this party allegiance, why in the world did he want the president's approval? Did he want, I mean, I just, I don't know how this happens. Tell me, because you've been around these kind of guys. <laughs> okay, a couple things. One, so the big picture point on this need to be the adult in the room yeah. um, and how that's a recurring theme in the White House. It's not a daycare center, for the love of God. As much as Bob the, Corker once told us it was. No, but it is literally, you know, uh, the free world is at stake here. And we are, it seems to require people around uh, the chief executive to make sure that that basic tasks are, are, are performed by, by our president. And that, you know, I think that's really like we've, we've gotten in our heads that the president needs people around him. So even under, you know, so transcend politics, right? So George W. Bush, there was never a question, regardless of what you think of W, right? And mm -hmm. many of us think of W. There was never a question that there was confidence around the president. Now, you mm -hmm. didn't agree with it, right? Mm -hmm. But there was never this thought that the president needed to be kept in check and the president, if left to his own impulses and devices, would, you know, start um, flying dragons around and blowing up castles or something, yeah. uh, as we saw last night. So, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's really a shame that we've reached that point. I think... On this question of, so back to this adult in the room and, and why you'd be around. I do think that every single person connected to the White House at a senior level needs to ask themselves, uh, if they're staying and if they've been around a while, mm -hmm. is this what I want to be associated with for the rest of my career? The first line is of this, their obituary. I keep thinking about that. Because seriously, just open up a newspaper. If you read that someone was in the White House around Richard Nixon on those last days in 1974, mm -hmm. You just got to ask yourself, why were you there? You should have read the writing on the wall the years before when the congressional investigations had started and just move on. And I understand the impulse to be a public servant. I did it for 15 years. Mm -hmm. I respect people who do. But at a certain point, you are going to be connected to this president for the rest of your life. Like mm -hmm. you're, every time anybody reads your name, anytime anybody reads your resume. Since we're talking about premium television, uh, The Crown, I don't know if you saw the first season, yeah. we, waiting for the second season, but, you know, <laughs> the idea that anyone who was remotely Nazi-aligned had given up their moral authority in the Windsor family, or, you know, if you had a sister who had married someone who was slightly sympathetic, that that crushes your moral authority and your standing going forward would seem to be something just out of self-interest. Let's just say that Rod Rosenstein is mostly a partisan and he doesn't get down on his knees or daven and ask for <laughs> guidance to serve the people. But, you know, he's a regular guy. Just does no one have their eye on their legacies? Right. And again, and this getting back to the public service point, and maybe Rod Rosenstein falls into this, too, that maybe it was about the public service and the need to, mm -hmm. I believe in the values of the Justice Department, I believe in the values of the government I want to stay. But at a certain point, it's gone beyond the value of your public service. And you are complicit in a presidency or a president, you know, let's even be charitable to the folks who work in the White House. Mm -hmm. But you're being complicit with a president who is willing to play fast and loose with the law and who is willing to 
insult federal judges and who is willing to thumb his nose at duly executed congressional subpoenas and who is willing to. And if you run and attacking every institution, including the media, Mm -hmm. every possible institution uh, that makes our country, to use his term, great Mm -hmm. and always has, you're associated with that. And if that's what you want, have at it. But, you know, so look, I don't think Rod's going to end up, you know, he's not going to face criminal liability or anything like that. But you are now Rod Rosenstein, the guy who was aligned with Trump. And if that's what you want for 30 years, by all means, go for it. Okay, so what about Bill Barr? I haven't seen you since he issued his letter, since he, you know, I think there's now consensus that he distorted the findings of the Mueller report. I mean, did he think we wouldn't notice you know, he gave a trailer for a film that wasn't the one we all were going to see <laughs> the next day. I just don't get that. I know that he sent out, just as Rod Rosenstein, incidentally, in this recent speech he gave about the Mueller report, just sends those signals to Trump, quoting Trump approvingly, as if Trump were some kind of Lincoln figure on some teleprompter speech he gave about the rule of law that's anathema to everything Trump does in the world. But, you know, he says, as Donald Trump pointed out, how can anybody with a straight face say that phrase as Donald Trump pointed out? But back to Barr. So Barr does this thing and he has one moment of glory where he repeats the word collusion, you know, 100 times in a presser, five times at least. And then look, oh, hand that off to Trump so that Trump can use his favorite phrase, no collusion. And that night goes to sleep thinking he's happy with me. Trump probably won't read the Mueller report. It seems quite clear that as much exposure as he's had to it, he hasn't read it. But what was he thinking? Yeah, let's quote George W. Bush again, right? Yeah. Like as George well, yeah. W. Bush pointed out, <laughs> as, as George, as, as that great, well, yes. Okay. But you know, remember from Fahrenheit 9/11, they run the quote: "Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, won't get fooled again." Or what? You know, he just sort of. <laughs> Right? Like, yeah. We want shame on you. Right. But it's sort of we wanted many of us. And, you know, and maybe I and again, maybe I fall into the category of wishy washy deep state moderates mm-hmm. that, uh, that I was making fun of earlier. But, you know, I think many of us wanted to pull for bar, even if yeah. uh, look, I'm not a I'm not a Republican, but I respect that someone had worked at the, the Justice Department for 30 years or, or, you know, over a period of a long period of time and a long career as a public servant. Like we can't deny that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he's not where I am or we are ideologically, but he at least would have been the adult in the room, right? Yeah. And class the joint up a little bit. And yeah. I think now we have enough data to indicate that that just didn't happen. And it's, and it's now, and I know you and maybe some some listeners are going to think, well, well, you know, well, damn it, you should have known that three months ago, mm. or you should have known that when he wrote the memorandum on obstruction of justice well before he was appointed. Mm-hmm. And I still think there was at least a factual question as mm-hmm. to you know, we could have at least given him the benefit of the doubt up through his confirmation hearing mm-hmm. that he was willing or would have been willing to say, hey, you know, I have these view, you know, um, I have this view on obstruction of justice. I made it known. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be the the balls and strikes kind of guy or whatever. And yeah. he's just consistently proved that wrong. And I think even wishy-washy deep state moderates yeah. are watching him and his con and starting with the letter and that press conference and the use of the term collusion repeatedly, mm-hmm. which should make our heads explode. Mm-hmm. It's not a crime in the federal criminal code. 
Mm-hmm. Yet somehow, and with Rod standing there, you know, like like in the back, like a hostage video, and just going along with this misstatement of what the law is, mm-hmm. it just it was really a staggering and astonishing. And I just think, again, the use of the word collusion is really striking. The fact that he went there, because again, that just that that's a fiction created by people who want to confuse others about what the law means. There's no federal criminal crime, at least in this context, for quote unquote collusion. And then. Talking about the present state of mind, like he was frustrated with the rigors of being president or whatever oh, um, yes. Buffett said there. I can't yeah. remember what the exact precise wording was. But imagine if future attorneys general are going to say, you know, this narcotics dealer really was frustrated with the rigors of living in a too small house in suburbia yeah. and just needed to sell a couple suitcases of, of crystal meth yeah. uh, to, to elevate his status somewhat, right? It's just... Yeah. It's really preposterous. Yes, I think Nicole Wallace straight off the press conference said, the reason my child destroyed your car is he was just so frustrated that he wasn't getting good grades. I mean, it's that tautology of he committed misdeeds because he was angry, upset, crazy, right? Well, and again, it's the wiggle room we give to white-collar defendants as a yes. general matter. And that now extends up to the president of the United States. Yeah. Or, or white-collar conduct. The ability of all of us in society to explain away the, the, the various rationales for committing white collar offenses is really staggering. And we've seen it play out, not just with the president of the United States, but a number of people connected to the president throughout this whole thing, you know, talking about Cohen's and Manafort's and all, you know, and even the way the, the way the press has covered it has been striking, though. And again, there's a willingness to explain away conduct that were it not the president of the United States, I just think it wouldn't have been explained away. And Sally Yates on her recent Meet the Press appearance had said, you know, she made that clear. If it were anybody else, this person probably would have been facing an indictment. I hope we haven't become desensitized to explaining away conduct. Yeah. But it, but it is pretty amazing. I once read this thing about park chess versus tournament chess. Mm. Very interesting. Have you ever played chess in a park, like on a timer and no. money? You know, park chess players seem good. They're not as good. Obviously, they're nowhere near as good as grandmasters, but they work by intimidating, forcing errors, right? So mm-hmm. they lean forward, they're on the timer, they just make you feel scared and uneasy and off balance. And the truth is, sometimes they can beat kind of academic players because people don't have emotional equipoise. Not all of us have that Gary Kasparov, like, I can think about mathematics even when someone's up in my face, right? But we thought that someone like Rod Rosenstein, and I think pointing out that he's described by Josh Dossie in the Washington Post piece you invoked, describing him as crying, really is these are surprisingly emotive people. And, you know, you can see where I'm going. Trump plays park chess. You know, mm-hmm. collusion, 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 collusion. And someone like Rod Rosenstein stammers, but that's not a cr- collusion, you know, over him, loud, just destabilizing him so that even you see Gary Cohn resorting to desperate measures. You see Rex Tillerson, the same thing, like these men that really shouldn't be shaken. But it seems to take a lot to stand in your truth, to use a, you know, corny phrase, around this guy when he's threatening you. I mean, James Comey describes hiding in curtains to get away from him. Preet Bharara had to call his father to say, this guy's kind of scaring me. You know, he like makes children of us all. Oh my God. Okay. Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Again, this is not, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, it's Jeff Sessions. I I think the name speaks for itself. Right. The man, there's no need for qualifiers there. The man carried a resignation letter 
every single time he went to the White House. <laughs> right. Yes. If you are the president and that is the manner in which your attorney general is engaging with you, you have failed yeah. as president. Sim- simply put, it's I mean, it's it's not a personality dispute at that point. If yeah. Every time the FBI director is in your presence, he has to then walk out and take contemporaneous notes yes. of your conversation or every time you have an exchange. You've failed as president. It's not, you know, OK, maybe the economy and the economy is great. Wonderful. But you're committing acts of moral malpractice. Mm-hmm. If that's where the people who are committed to serving law enforcement are regarding you as a threat and as a cancer. Amazing. Yeah. You failed. And there's there's no other way to put it. I just think it's a bigger point. There are legal questions and moral questions, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you believe, I know you'd sort of tipped off earlier that, you know, that maybe you're even not feeling Mueller right now, but let's just pretend (laughs) that we agree with everything in in the Mueller report. Right. And so we agree that the conduct itself wasn't chargeable. Fine. Again, this is purpose of discussion. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still morally suspect and problematic behavior, yes. particularly for a president of the United States. Yeah. And we just we're just getting used to it. That's just a little anecdote. I was in a green room mm-hmm. with a Republican congressman the other day, former congressman, who just said, you know, look, this, this report was interesting. No obstruction, no collusion. And I cut him off and said, you've reduced this to a criminal or not criminal question. And yes. that, is, that simply is not what the calculus should be when you're assessing the conduct of the president of the United States. Absolutely. It just should not. That's why I've really been recommending two things, which is just if you have five minutes, watch the Adam Schiff video, the It's Not Okay video, where he simply goes over, this is before the report was released, to talk about, list all the facts that we all agree on. Some of them were told to us by Trump world including Donald Trump Jr.'s, if it's what you say, I love it email, willingness to meet with Russians for dirt. And he goes through that whole list and then just says, you know, do you think this is okay? What's amazing is, as hostile to Adam Schiff as the Republicans in Congress are, none of them said there's a factual error here. You know, because they can't. Right. Because the facts aren't in dispute. Exactly. The other thing I'd ask people to do, and this is a little bit of a plug, but I hope it was a public service. I worked with Audible. You may have seen this online. I did. Yes. I'm really proud of this. We managed to get the whole Mueller report in audiobook form available for free to people. They had three different actors read it, you know, over a weekend. One of them read 100 pages, you know, in one session. And just a beautiful voice. And everybody who's listened to it, in little bits of it in your car, whenever it has said that they get more details out of this than they did reading it. And I really want and hope that voters will just turn to the undisputed facts so that we don't get into a silly football conversation about collusion or witch hunt or whatever and just sit with it and say, if these are the facts, you know, as Adam Schiff says, there may be a way that you can make this okay. That you could say, you know, a Rod Rosenstein or a Bill Barr or a Trump rallier could say, well, you know what? That's what it takes to win. Like what Trump said about, you know, not paying taxes. I think that's smart. You know, anybody would have taken the dirt meeting. Of course, Roger Stone is a dirty tricks player. That's what politics is. I would love to hear someone say that. It would be a huge relief for them to stop saying no collusion, to pretend that the facts don't exist, and yet not weigh in on the moral question. I agree. I almost don't want to say anything because that was the most poetic thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and I've read the Canterbury Tales. Um, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No comment. You you hit it on the head. Well, I really do. I hope that all voters of every stripe will go to it because not only is it an incredibly interesting 
referendum test of one's patriotism, sense of this country, but it's a pot boiler. I mean, scene after scene of some of the most outlandish, cartoonish characters saying really crazy stuff that you can't believe you're like privy to hearing. I mean, yeah. What stood out to you in the Mueller report? Who, like, what characters have a hold on you that maybe don't get talked about so much? I have my little group. She gets very little airtime, but I found uh, the Rachel Brand exchange. Um, And and if I remember, I don't think uh, she's she's quoted directly at all, but it's this question of we need to find out if the associate attorney general is on our team. Right. And by implication, they're they're sort of testing her loyalty. And this is the point I was making earlier, like who survives and who doesn't. She's now in private in the private sector. She yeah. she bounced long before any of this. And, we, you know, we can speculate as to why now, why someone who is a former Supreme Court clerk and senior DOJ official and now the number three position in the Justice Department would leave after, what was it, like less than a year? I think now there's the quote unquote went to spend time with her family. But no, she got out because I think this was an incredibly toxic administration Mm -hmm. to be in for someone who is committed to their own reputation as an attorney, but also believer in the fidelity of the rule of law. So I found that because she hasn't come, she hadn't come up much um, as a general matter, but she comes up as sort of a secondary or tertiary character in it where they're they're trying to sort of suss out how how she is. And and very quietly and unceremoniously, she ends up not in the administration anymore. And she's gone on to Walmart. So yes, she's a perfect person to bring up because like Walter Schaub and Sally Yates, probably the biggest job in government she'd ever get. She had been first woman to serve as associate attorney general on track for this historic career. And it just wasn't worth it to her. I mean, she's a counterexample to the Rod Rosenstein thing. She and Yates and Schaub and there have been some others who just look at it and say, I'm not going to do this. And to be fair, when people keep saying she went to the private sector Walmart, she is the head of corporate governance, which is as close as it comes to ethics in, you know, in the private sector. So she does seem to have a, a clear trajectory. Very interesting person. And it's a great choice on this. So let's play a little hypothetical, right? Again, okay. she doesn't share my politics. I don't think she shares yours. You know, um, but she, <laughs> n- yeah. yet. but here's the thing. I don't think it's a speculation, like future potential Supreme Court nominee, future potential attorney general nominee, future whatever, White House counsel down the road, right? Again, yep. uh, in a decade or another Republican administration or whatever. That all goes away if her name is connected to Donald Trump to the end of the administration. If she ends up being char- staying around and then being characterized differently in this report, that would have sunk her chances at all of those accolades that would serve any attorney well. So I think to answer your question, the character that I find most interesting is the character who got out. Harry Potter, the girl who lived, right? Yeah, uh, literally. That's extremely, I haven't heard anyone really seize on her. I kind of like the bad, I mean, I'm interested in the bad guys. Peter Smith among them. Rest in peace, Peter Smith. Anyway, I'll rave about Peter Smith on another show because I want to get to a final question about the past and then get to Congress. So you worked in the Justice Department. Yeah. And people center left, left have talked somewhat approvingly or at least with some kind of nervous hope about institutionalism, that Emmett Flood might serve the executive branch, not serve Donald Trump, that Rod Rosenstein, that Bill Barr might serve the Justice Department or the cause of justice and not Donald Trump. But there is the other thing of, uh, you know, we never say public servant anymore. I mean, can you imagine thinking of Donald Trump as a public servant? But there is a way that Rod Rosenstein 
seems to serve the Justice Department before the people. And they're not the same thing. And when he talks about, and, and I actually heard from some sources in the FBI that they thought the Mueller report served the Justice Department before serving the public. And there's that way that Rod Rosenstein, I mean, I hate it when sort of Marines do it, you know, this weepy thing in the beginning where the Marine Corps and my buddies in the Marine Corps and Rod Rosenstein, Comey does it, you know, the finest people I've ever worked with. Okay, I get that. But, you know, and it's paragraphs of how excited he is about the Justice Department. I mean, can you imagine just a journalist saying, above all, CNN, above all, the New York (laughs) Times? Right. We're meant to serve. These people are meant to serve and good for them. They like their colleagues. But their first moral obligation ought to be to the public. Right. You know, that's an interesting framing. And I haven't ever thought of it in those terms. I mean, I do think the sort of and Sally uh, Yates talks about this a lot. Right. Where the duty is actually to the rule of law. Your duty is to ensuring that there are some things that transcend even, I don't want to say transcend the laws of man, but, you know, just sort of a bigger value. And I do wonder what serving the public over serving the rule of law would mean. Because what I do fear Mm. is that if you make it about serving the public, to some extent, you end up becoming susceptible to changing political winds. Yep. So it becomes a risky thing where, you know, I don't believe I'm serving the public. I believe I'm serving the rule of law. I just fear if you play that out, what does that actually mean? Does that mean, you know, serving the public that has a certain notion of what laws mean Uh, and a certain notion of what authority means or what the presidency is and so on? Yeah. And they change over time. I don't know. That, that's a great question. Well, to say, you, you've got a good point, though. To say the rule of law, the rule of law is a third point on the triangle because, yeah, the rule of law is an idea. The Justice Department is a group of very fine, noble men and women. Ah. And the American public could easily be mistaken for a kind of populist feeling. But anyway, we probably won't be able to settle this right now. And I really no. want to get to something you're extremely interesting on, which is Barr's hemming and hawing, almost refusal to speak to Congress. More seeming obstruction from someone who is ought to stand for the law and a level of transparency. So a couple things, but just really quickly back to that. I will where I will agree with you on this rule of law point is that as a former prosecutor, I will tell you this. Prosecutors get very moralistic about themselves. Like if you were to ask the defense attorneys, what do you think of prosecutors? It's like, yeah, they think they're the defenders of freedom. So your point, even though I said, you know, I, I made that complication of what what does fidelity to the thing you're serving mean, yeah. yet prosecutors are a little snooty about, about themselves. And I think that's entirely a fair point. And I, you know, and I think it's fair. So anyway, that's, a, that's an hour long discussion another day. <laughs> okay. So on to William Barr and this whole testimony thing, this gets into a lot of the stuff you and I've been talking about for the last little bit here. And it's all about institutions. Like to what extent do you respect the institution of mm-hmm. Congress? As a co-equal branch of government Mm -hmm. that has an investigative mandate and so on. The president has made clear that he does not, that he regards himself as the head of state Mm -hmm. and that the other two branches of government, when they are not acting his direct service, do not serve him well. Mm -hmm. He's made that clear. He made that, you know, he's gone again. When courts don't rule his way, because look, if a court ruled against Barack Obama or the DOJ, you know, there would always be a wink to this isn't the decision we would have written. And we respect the court, however. When the president gets a bad decision, it's courts are illegitimate and these are Obama judges and they're all out to get yes. me. And that's undermining people's faith in core core faith in, in the institution, fundamentally, right? Mm-hmm. It's very central to how the president's engaged with courts. Now, for instructive on this bar thing and not testifying, I think you look back to Mnuchin's 
testimony, Steve Mnookin, the Treasury Secretary's testimony like a month or so ago in front of House Financial Services, where he says to Maxine Waters, you know, look, I can stay if you want, but I have a, a like an important international meeting to get to. There's that quote. It's, I have a meeting. And so they get into it a little bit. And I think both sides sort of drew from it their Yas Queen moment where she was sort of uh, going after him and he sort of stood up to her. I mean, the important meeting, I can't, I mean, there's just, there are too many gifts here. You know, yes. it's like, it's not just stranger than fiction. It's all, it's stranger than the most deep fake gif. There's no way you can make this stuff up. I mean, no. our treasury secretary saying he's got to go for an important meeting. Like you'd roll your eyes, uh, you know, on a t- Tinder date if someone needed to go. <laughs> and that what's more important? Congress is the, you know, that's your most important yeah. meeting. And Maxine Waters did swipe left when he said that because yeah. it is a nonsense statement for someone, two individuals who are not equal bargaining or negotiating partners. Yeah. The simple fact is she is the chair of a congressional committee. You are there. You have agreed to come voluntarily, but she has the power sitting there in her chair to unilaterally subpoena you. Um, but it's also, you're just not peers. And I think this idea that cabinet secretaries are peers of members of Congress is just a fiction, right? Yeah. And I think it's a bigger question about what separation of powers are. And so I think lost in this William Barr thing is that there's a long history of the parties negotiating both the executive branch and the DOJ or State Department or whatever as to the terms of interviews or meetings on the Hill. It can be public or private. It can be members of Congress, not members of Congress. It can be staff or whatever. But, you know, people, major cabinet officials submit to questioning from congressional staff all the time. It happened in in Iran-Contra. I know that Janet Reno did. Um, and this is a thing, but just this whole idea that, well, I'm just not going to come if I have to talk to, to the congressional staff, that's completely alien and completely disrespectful to the notion of separation of powers, period. I think Donald Trump's chief policy initiative and what he hopes will be his policy legacy is the obstruction of justice. It's an every day. <laughs> every day he wakes up and he sticks to his agenda, obstruct justice. I was concerned, frankly, that policy work would be derailed after the Mueller report came out. But oh, no, there's still ways to stand in the way of investigations. I mean, this is just intellectually a maddening time. We have the torture of Jamal Khashoggi and then suddenly, oh, the investigation's over. We get it. Move on. We have only Congress asking, can we have a week to look into Brett Kavanaugh? No, no, no. Let's just close it up. Let's close up the case. And then, of course, with Donald Trump, no collusion, as your friend said. That's interesting. No collusion, no obstruction. Moving on. What are you talking about? Don't you want to know every detail? You know, it's like voter suppression. Don't you want to know who the people want to be president? Like, you know, it's same with impeachment inquiry. Everybody wants to get this buttoned up so that we have a legitimate government. And the number of times you move on from Bush versus Gore or from the 2008 financial crisis, every time you move on from something that is not resolved, where justice has not been served, you set the country up to be wobbly, to have cognitive dissonance around all kinds of things. So it's interesting. So let's so, so talk about how this yeah. congressional thing works. I have in my notes written down here, they will come to an agreement, right? Which was, which was the point I was going to make, which okay. is they always come to an agreement as to somebody testifying. The caveat is that, well, I mean, in if these if these were normal times, if it were a normal president and a normal presidency, yes, they would come to an agreement because that's what always happens. Mm. Like you just work it out. 
But there's such contempt and disdain for Congress and the other branches of government that I'm not convinced that these times are normal. And, and the, the, you know, it's like I, I could also have written in my notes that the president will submit his tax returns when he announces his candidacy for the presidency in 2015. Yes. But somehow that norm got upended yeah. uh, and hasn't quite changed and on and on and on and on and on. And um, it's just this is so basic, this question of working out how and who an individual testifies before Congress. Mm. And the fact that they've sort of thrown it out there uh, in public is pretty striking. And it's a new thing. Like, um, you, the parties will disagree, right? Like, it's, I don't, you know, and, and if, look, if I were advising Barr, I wouldn't want him submitting the, the testimony from, from congressional staff. But it happens. And mm-hmm. it can happen. And this is a legally complex and uh, sort of, as a PR matter, um, high-profile matter. Of course, it's a negotiating a negotiating point, but um, it, it's just striking when viewed in the context of the administration's entire uh, uh, relationship of disdain to Congress and other branches of government. Uh, I don't know how it gets worked out. I don't either. I mean, I guess the one maybe glimmer of hope in the precedent is Bill Barr, the redacted Mueller report, there was a lot more to it than we expected. So it could be that Barr ultimately is not just an obstructor. Like he gave Trump the collusion line. Okay. But remember when we thought that he would redact for damage to the president's reputation and that we might see even more black pages than we saw, you know, and we certainly got a lot out of it. So maybe, maybe I'm going back to the, I'm going back to the time where we thought his better angels would prevail and he's an institutionalist. And I, I, I don't want to be fooled again, as George W. Bush said, <laughs> don't be fooled the second time. Shame on everyone, <laughs> whatever it is. I just still think, and this is a point that I made earlier, what it takes to survive in this White House is fidelity to the president. It's people who are willing to tell the president what he wants to hear. And again, and at this point, I mean, that, that's that's a kind of speculation that I'm not crazy about engaging in because I'm not there. Yeah. But we've got literally now it's what, three, four years of the repeated stories coming out of why different people at various levels of the government end up either getting fired or quitting their jobs. And invariably, it's folks who, you know, Secretary Nielsen is a great example. Like before being the face of ripping toddlers away from their parents, she was the person who uh, had a reputation for telling the president, no, sir, you can't do that legally. Right. Um, We saw some articles on that. And when that happens enough, eventually the president decides he's done with you and you move on and you end up with, I don't even know what they're thinking about for Secretary of Homeland Security, but they start Mm -hmm. names like Chris Kobach and Ken Cuccinelli being thrown out. Yeah. Uh, who have no business managing our immigration apparatus, mm-hmm. but, but that's what you end up with. And yeah. I just feel like we are converging on a cabinet of individuals who will not tell the president no. And I fear if like the longer Barr is around, mm-hmm. it's more of a sign that he is or has become that. And that's unfortunate. Who's doing well in Congress? Who does seem to have the rule of law on her or his mind? And who do you think is the force to be reckoned with for Trump in Congress? Lindsey Graham. Oh, wait a second. It's not 2002. (laughs) Right, exactly. Formerly of the deep state, now of Trump hell. 
before Bizarro uh, Lindsey Graham or like White Walker Lindsey Graham, uh, who had been taken over by zombies, (laughs) came out uh, when he decided to get a primary challenge. Yeah, he would have been a defender of like, look, when I worked up there with Senator Schumer, loved working with his staff in his office because uh, you could always find places in which you could uh, agree. Right. Yeah. Uh, And work things out. And it just I feel like now, again, politicians, like I said, uh, politicians are rational actors. And facing a primary challenge, he's got to you know, give the folks back home what they want. But at, a, but at what cost? And again, the question becomes, to what extent are you willing to sell your reputation? So I think um, it's unfortunate that they're all men. Yeah. Um, but the big chairs behind all of this stuff. So Schiff, Cummings, Nadler are all people who believe in the institution of Congress mm-hmm. and aren't ones to sort of play the... The gotcha, you know, there's a typo in your letter and now I'm going to subpoena you over Mm -hmm, it or type of stuff. It's respect for the prerogatives of Congress. And so the great example is that whole shift, five minute long monologue Mm -hmm. um, of, you know, these are the things that are bad. I mean, that's a very rule of law centric and institution centric speech Mm -hmm. that he gave that transcended politics. If you were to take out the names of the individuals, you wouldn't know if he was talking about a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. And I think you get some of that from Schiff, Cummings, and Nadler. Yeah, it's unfortunate that they're all men. But, uh, you know, it's great to see that Waters has a gavel and has done the stuff that she's done. There's also someone, I mean, we don't talk about her that much, but Nancy Pelosi's doing it. Ah, yeah, I sort of focus on them because they're more of my world. But she has magically kept together a diverse caucus. Right now, there have been a bunch of articles that have suggested that the voice of the progressives is actually a smaller subset of the caucus than we know. And most of the folks who got elected are sort of, you know, big money moderate types. Mm -hmm. But she still kept them together. And she still managed this astonishing degree of political and policy savvy in holding a majority. And it bugs me when, you know, all the criticism, oh, she was so old. Oh, she's this. Oh, she's out of touch with the various. Well, I don't know. It looks like seems like they're, they're kind of holding their act together very well. And so she has demonstrated and proven to be a true leader for the caucus. No question. And when, not if, when impeachment comes, knock on wood, she and Schiff and Nadler and Cummings have really built that on a firm foundation. I mean, if it happens. And I think because of the fact that impeachment isn't a political slam dunk right now in their estimation, what they have done, okay, we're just going to do hearings and we're going to build a record. Yes. Now, a lot of people are criticizing that, but it will succeed in building a record, right? And if they end up down the impeachment road, at least they can say, well, this wasn't willy-nilly. Look, we have 44 hours of hearings and we have this 400-page report and so on and so on and so on. And we find that this there is at least a question as to whether this is high crimes and misdemeanors. And so we are going to open up impeachment proceedings, right? Absolutely. Now, again, some people think that that whole thing was a sellout and they should have should have uh, started with impeachment proceedings from day one. But They do know what they're doing. I will give them that. I think that's right. I really think that's right. And to end where we started, if you can take a minute out of Game of Thrones or hang out on the Game of Thrones board, and I'll stop waiting for the next season of The Crown, we can watch Robert Mueller's testimony. And that, I think, will be riveting. My guest has been Elliot Williams, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department and now a principal at the Rabin Group. Thank you very, very much for being here and come back soon. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. 
That's our show for today. What did you think? Let's get a Twitter thread going. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then sign up for slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Today's your day to become a Slate Plus member. And I'm not kidding. A mere $35. That's Zlotties a day. For the first year, that opens up a world of podcast wonder. You get Trumpcast and all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.